This is the TriDot Podcast. TriDot uses your training data and genetic profile combined with predictive analytics and artificial intelligence to optimize your training, giving you better results in less time with fewer injuries. Our podcast is here to educate, inspire, and entertain. We'll talk all things triathlon with expert coaches and special guests. Join the conversation and let's improve together. Together. Hey folks, welcome to another nutrition-packed episode of the Tridot Podcast. Today we are going to be talking about high-fat and low-carb nutrition plans, diet strategies, whatever word you want to use. Uh, I, I know keto is a is a popular popular term, and, and high-fat, low-carb, and, and there's just so many uh, ways to approach your uh, diet and your nutrition. And we are going to talk through how to be an athlete on a high-fat, low-carb diet. So our key guide. For this talk is our resident nutritional expert, Dr. Krista Austin. Krista is an exercise physiologist and nutritionist who consulted with the U.S. Olympic Committee and the English Institute of Sport. She has a Ph.D. in exercise physiology and sports nutrition, a master's degree in exercise physiology, and is a certified strength and conditioning specialist. Krista, thanks for coming back on to talk about high-fat, low-carb diets. Hey, glad to be back with you, Andrew and Elizabeth, too. How's it going today for you? It is going great. Uh, I was tempted, Dr. Austin, I have a t-shirt that says, I love carbs, and I was tempted to wear it. Uh, <laughs> oh, you shut up. <laughs> while, while we were recording, because um, well, I, I do, I do, I love my carbs, but it, <laughs> you know, I, I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn about high fat, low carb diets, and I, I didn't want to come in with that attitude of, uh, I'm just going to- Be a rebel. Sit in the corner with my carbs. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Open-minded. I like that. <laughs> yes, I'm here open-minded and, and, and ready to learn. So um, also joining us is pro triathlete and coach Elizabeth James. Elizabeth came to the sport from a soccer background and quickly rose through the triathlon ranks using TriDot from a beginner to top age grouper to a professional triathlete. She's a Kona and Boston Marathon qualifier who has coached triathletes with TriDot since 2014. Elizabeth, thanks for coming uh, on and learning alongside of me. Oh, for sure. It is always great to be here. I'm excited about it. Well, I'm Andrew, the average triathlete, voice of the people, and captain of the middle of the pack. As always, we'll roll through our warm-up question and settle in for our keto main set conversation. And then we'll wrap up with today's cool down. Lots of good stuff. Let's get to it. Time to warm up. Let's get moving. Food, drinks, and nutrition products can come in a variety of flavors. Some like a fruit-flavored sparkling water or a barbecue-flavored bag of chips, just make a ton of sense. But others, like a ranch dressing-flavored soda or wasabi-flavored Kit Kat bar, just feel very, very wrong. Dr. Austin, Elizabeth, what is an example of a flavor-product combination that many people probably like, but just leaves you scratching your head and saying absolutely not? Elizabeth, I'll start with you. So, okay, funny thing, I just saw a news report about weird Kit Kat flavors while lifting at the gym last week. Why so, are you reading about Kit Kats at the gym? Are you a little hungry? It was just on TV. It was like a news okay. report and, and they were doing, I don't know, it's some special about this. So, 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 you, so you weren't planning your, your post-workout snack at the gym looking at Kit Kat ads? Uh, no comment, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, like until recently, I had no idea that, you know, Kit Kat translates into this Japanese expression 
fusion, meaning good luck, and that there's so many of these unique flavors. I really thought Kit Kat was just kind of your typical chocolate bar. Yeah, but same. Gosh, I mean, they've got some interesting ones, and they were showing like soybean powder Kit Kats and baked potato Kit Kats. And Ooh, nope. That that was weird. Um, but you know, since you've mentioned that, I'd, I was trying to think of something else. Um, and I don't know that this is one that many people would like, uh, but what came to mind was sweet corn ice cream. Ooh. And I, I'm having a hard time with that one. Um, Charles and I are both suckers for sweets, particularly ice cream. And so when we travel, we, we've been known to check out a local ice cream shop. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially, you know, when we're traveling for races, post-race, looking for that little treat. Um, and we've certainly seen some unique flavors. And most of the time, even if it may not be our particular choice, the flavors seem to make sense. But sweet corn ice cream still has me stumped. And as you know, even growing up in the Midwest, I, I know that sweet corn is a Midwest love. I too enjoy corn on the cob, but to have that as an ice cream flavor seems as, as you put it, Andrew, just so very wrong. Dr. Austin, any thoughts on sweet corn ice cream? I don't know. I'm kind of still taking it in right now. A little bit of shock. I'm thinking <laughs> about the corn on the cob. I'm thinking about vanilla ice cream and I'm not really, it, it's just not, not making it. Not it mesh. Yeah. It just doesn't yeah, mesh for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dr. Austin, for, for you, what, what is one, uh, another one, uh, since Elizabeth has both of us scratching our heads at sweet corn ice cream, uh, what, what's another one that just confuses you that people actually can enjoy it? You know what? I don't know that I've ever really focused in on it, per se. I just know I'll end up going through the grocery store or I'll be in a, you know, like a 7-Eleven or like a gas station type store and I'll see some really unique flavors and I just kind of, you know, it just like hits me at the moment. Like, how could that possibly be? And mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I just look at it. I guess I'm really traditional um, and just can't wrap my head around it. So I keep going. Um, but at the same time, people might say, well, you like a lot of, you know, traditional flavors like hazelnut or peppermint mocha. And you'll put that in your coffee, what have you. And in some cultures that seems a little odd and off. So I, yeah, that's true. You know, I just kind of sit back and say, you know, if they think that's odd, you know, for, for what we do, then, you know, if I sit there and look at what they do, they may say, well, Krista, that's actually pretty, pretty odd. And I think that comes sometimes just from traveling to other countries, seeing how they cook their food or what they eat, what's their main course. And you realize that, Really, you know, you're you're thinking of everything in your own perspective, and you've got to sometimes be a bit open-minded, and give something a try, and uh, just see if it's something that'll that that'll work for you. But I would say, on the whole, I just keep blowing past it in the grocery store, and just kind of look at it and keep going. <laughs> Even in the ridiculous warm-up question, Dr. Austin is just nutritionally coaching us and uh, and, and giving us some wisdom. So mm-hmm. I, I love that perspective. <laughs> just keep um, moving, kids. That- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Keep moving down the grocery aisle to the items that you do enjoy and let people uh, enjoy their sweet corn ice cream that we think is weird. Um, the, the one I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to ruffle some feathers here because I know this is beloved uh, for a lot of folks. And, and I, this is actually a little bit, you know, I, I think to a few episodes back um, when we had Dr. Austin with us, we were talking about seasonal flavors. Uh, and, and a really popular seasonal flavor is pumpkin spice. And I am absolutely not a pumpkin spice guy. Uh, I can't do it. I don't really <laughs> like pumpkin anything. 
uh, to, to be honest. And I know a lot of people that that's just a beloved thing at certain times of year. Um, and, and, and listen, if someone likes that and they want to have a pumpkin spice latte, like there's certain applications of pumpkin spice that makes sense to me. You know, pumpkin bread makes sense to me that someone would like that. I don't like it, but I feel like the pumpkin spice thing, and this is why I choose this one, it's just gone too far. I saw in the grocery store the other day, pumpkin spice bubble gum. Mm. And, and like, and, and that's, that's just one example of a multitude of things that now have a pumpkin spice variety that shouldn't. If you are buying <laughs> pumpkin spice bubble gum and chewing that to, to just for an hour have pumpkin spice in your mouth, like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not with you, I'm against you. And uh, I'm just confused. I'm scratching my head at that one. So that's what it is for me. Um, guys, we're going to throw this out to you guys uh, on all of our social media accounts. So you, you can go follow us on uh, Instagram. You can go follow us uh, and, and join our I Am Try Out Facebook group. And we're going to throw it out to you. You know, what is a flavor you've seen on the shelf that just leaves you scratching your head and just wondering who in the world actually likes this flavor? Um, I, I trust there's some great answers out there and we can't wait to see them and just also scratch our heads at them. On to the main set. Going in three, two, one. Our main set today is brought to you by our good friends at UCAN. Here at TriDot, we are huge believers in using UCAN to fuel our training and racing. In the crowded field of nutrition companies, what separates UCAN from the pack is the science behind their super starch, the key ingredient in UCAN products. While most energy powders are filled with sugar or stimulants that cause a spike or crash, UCAN energy powders, powered by super starch, deliver a steady release of complex carbs to give you stable blood sugar and provide long-lasting energy. UCAN also offers tasty and refreshing hydration mixes and energy bars for when you are on the go. When I was new to UCAN, my first purchase was their perfectly named Try Starter Pack. It's the best way to discover what super starch-powered UCAN products are best for you. So head to their website, generationucan.com, and use the code TRIDOT to save 15% on your entire order. So there is a lot of discussion, Dr. Austin, just around high-fat diets in sport, and it seems to have created just quite a debate in the sport uh, nutrition community. You know, what exactly is a high-fat diet and which of the popular nutrition plans kind of fall underneath this umbrella? So the popular nutrition plans may be, in fact, the original ketogenic diet where they used a four-to-one fat-to-carb-protein combination. But then there are others like Atkins or any type of low-glycemic, low-carb modification that's out there where they try to limit the amount of carbohydrates that they are taking in in order to help facilitate the individual's end goal. Um, most common reference that I actually see these days out of the you know clients or the people that I engage with who are, have an interest in ketogenic diets is that they will turn around and reference it as something that's, you know, this 25 to 50 grams of carbohydrate per day, and they'll compare it as net versus total carbs. Um, but interestingly enough, when you take a look at their nutrition plan, they've actually modified the original keto diet and put in a good bit more protein. So it's not a situation where you're at that classic four to one 
but rather they've modified it through the use of things like maybe MCT oil so that they can increase the protein content and still stay in a pretty uh, deep level of ketosis. If you take a look at the curve of ketosis that can be brought about through different types of carbohydrate restriction, you know, the curve is actually very much bell-shaped and the extent to which fats and proteins and carbohydrate are manipulated is what determines where you're gonna fall on that curve, including your total caloric intake. Because one of the things that people do think sometimes uh, when they're on a diet that is a bit higher in protein in relation to their fat content and carb content is that they're in ketosis. And in all reality, when I look at it, I go, well, no, you're in energy restriction. Uh, the amount of fat you have is about equivocal to your protein and you've got enough carbohydrate that you're barely in ketosis and that's more so from caloric restriction. So it's interesting when people turn around and say keto, the question is what do they really mean and is it the classic form yeah. that, that you know really defined it back when they you know, developed it for really medical purposes? When athletes talk about being in ketosis, um, can, can you break down for us like what exactly that means? Yeah, so when an athlete says, I've gone into ketosis, it, it really means that they're, you know, working to produce a certain, certain amount of ketones within the body. They're trying to create a metabolic state where you have these elevated levels of ketones. And that's where, you know, today you see something like ketone esters where they want the ketones to maybe help them feel better. You know, it might help them from a cognitive perspective. And so you'll see the ketone esters out there for people who can't naturally get into deep ketosis. But really, it's a very normal response to low glucose availability. We see increased ketone production even after exercise in which they do not give themselves carbohydrate just because you are tapping into uh, the glucose that's in the bloodstream and you might experience bouts of lower levels of glucose. Um, and what it means is that you're producing something that the body can use as an alternative energy source. Um, and especially, you know, the brain in and of itself really seems to benefit from that. Um, and it's, it's really the origin of what, you know, the athletes pursued it for um, just because they turn around and they say, hey, you know, I want to feel better. And because they want to feel better, they, they turn around and say, let me see if ketosis is something that is going to benefit me, whether it's feeling better in training, especially during prolonged bouts, or it's feeling better on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I kind of first became aware of the term keto, um, you know, really just a few years ago. I, I know it's been a thing longer than that. Um, you know, there, there's a television network that I was working at as a producer. And uh, I mean, just several of the staff, several of the on-air talent, um, you know, uh, uh, executive producers, you know, all of a sudden we're just all about keto diets and we were having guests come through the television station to talk about keto diets on air. And, um, you know, you, you, you see more and more books, you know, in, in, in the, on the store bookshelves, you know, talking about and coaching people and offering recipes for, for keto. And so it's become this buzzword, um, that, that I've seen around and I, I would walk in the work, you know, on, on casual Fridays with my, I love carbs t-shirt on just to kind of ruffle some feathers <laughs> for funsies. Um, you know, but, and, but it leaves me wondering, you know, looking back, you know, what are the origins of the ketogenic diet? Yeah. So the ketogenic diet was originally established to address diseases that have metabolic dysregulation, such as epilepsy where they you know had uh, treatment resistant seizures 
um, cancer, Alzheimer's, and even obesity. And essentially, you got to remember, it's carbohydrate deprivation that results in the ketone production as the body derives energy from fat. And those ketones are actually helping to create a different metabolic environment, um, which was actually very beneficial, they found, to certain disease states. And so that's where it started. That was its origins. Um, but then as it grew and became more well-known, there were different populations that started tapping into that, including sport. Yeah. So, I mean, how did that diet that was designed for curing disease kind of transition into sport? Well, originally it became more popular in populations like bodybuilders, fitness athletes, weightlifters. And as it became popular, researchers started to notice it. They started to pay more attention to it. And they began taking a look at how it might even impact something such as endurance performance. And so at the end of the day, it was through different cultures that are out there in the sport, and I would say even the physique realm, which is where I would put you know, bodybuilders and fitness um, professionals, that it became popular for the everyday person. Um, and really in the bodybuilding and weight you know, uh, modification world, I would just tell you that it was really used to cut people up and make weight, sustained weight loss very doable um, and get them ready for, you know, competitions. And it's just over time that people pick up on these populations that have occurred and they say, let's study them. Let's understand whether or not there's a significant benefit to people who are not in a, a state of disease. Hmm, yeah. I, and I mean, you mentioned endurance athletes there as kind of picking this up. You know, what in particular is it that would draw a triathlete maybe to a high fat diet? Well, I think a lot of the draw for the endurance athletes, you know, it came from the research population because we sat there and said, oh, well, look, if we manipulate the macronutrients and put people into ketosis, we can see these significant improvements in fat oxidation. And at that point in time, they said, well, this is really going to help uh, minimize the need for carbohydrate and delay fatigue in an endurance athlete so that they can hopefully not bonk uh, during competition. And that was the initial thought around it, is that if you could spare muscle glycogen stores, that you might be able to go in and enhance performance. And over the years, what they've kind of shown is that performance isn't necessarily, though, indicative of fat oxidation levels. Um, the speed and power held during a triathlon is not directly related to that. So what's interesting is that, you know, while we've done all of this, what we have found is that there is a very individual response to the different techniques that consist of, you know, something that is high fat or ketogenic in nature being implemented into an athlete's diet. And I guess what I mean by that is that some have taken the full concept on board in which they go into ketosis and live in that state and believe it's very beneficial to their training and their even the health, just the way they feel, their ability to recover and, and not be so fatigued when they're training and competing versus others that take the concept of, oh, let's work on fat oxidation in training and use a high fat, you know, approach prior to training to help facilitate some of those adaptations. So in my limited understanding of, of keto coming into this conversation, I've already learned a lot, um, but, but coming in, you know, I, I'd heard a lot of athletes that, that kind of use this, that, that kind of follow a, a keto plan that, that believe in it. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of their pitch is that 
um, you know, the, the body can only hold, you know, so many, um, you know, grams of carbs at, at a time in our fuel reserves. And on race day, particularly long course race day, you're going to burn through that, uh, without replenishing. And, and I've, I've always kind of heard the notion that if you're in ketosis, if, if you're a high fat, low carb athlete, um, you know, your, your body becomes used to, you know, burning fat, uh, and, and using the fat stores, which are much larger than our carbohydrate stores as your on course energy. And, and, and so it kind of builds this notion that you, you, you can almost, uh, truly avoid the bonk, uh, with a high fat diet. Is, is that a myth or is that, is, is there truth to that? What I would tell you is that everybody is an individual. And when you're looking at sports, especially like long course triathlon, avoiding the bonk comes down to still optimizing your fueling strategy and the way that you optimize your training. However, for those that do struggle with what feels like bonking or struggle to take in nutrition, the, the high-fat diet approach seems to actually help them a good bit. But what you'll find when you work with them is that they can actually take in, if you manipulate the carbohydrates correctly during a race, a good bit of carbohydrate. But they don't have to take in as much as they used to. And really it's because once they are in ketosis and they take in carbohydrate while they're, they're training, while they're competing... It's like all of a sudden you're tossing, you know, gas onto an open fire, okay? And you essentially, you know, what happens when you, when you do that? All of a sudden, whoosh, there's this huge, you know, fire that gets lit up. And really, really that's what's happening within their bodies is that they're able to oxidize carbohydrate that much better. And you'll find that all of a sudden instead of having all this GI distress at like 60 grams of carbohydrates an hour – they'll have none at all. And really, it's just about the ability to burn off the carbohydrate they're, they're taking in. And so I'll use a lot of high molecular weight carbohydrates with my individuals who have the GI distress or they've hit the bonk if they are on these high fat diets. And what you notice is it comes down to optimization, Andrew, of understanding how they need to fuel nutritionally for the majority of the time and then what actually happens on race day and how do we blend that ideally for them in order to get them where they're trying to go. I'm so glad too that you, you know, brought up still the use of carbohydrates for athletes that might be following more of a high fat, low carb diet um, in a race setting because I think that might be a common myth for some athletes as well, that they're like, well, you know, I'm high fat, low carb. So, you know, I'm not necessarily going to need to take in any carbs on race day. And I love the analogy you gave. It's like, you know, now you just have the opportunity. You have that open fire and you're pouring the gasoline onto it and your body is able to really utilize carbohydrates maybe in a different way than it was before with this nutritional approach. Yeah, and you know, they really will go in and oxidize the carbohydrate that much better. And even like the the low glycemic carbohydrates will just have a higher oxidation rate in someone like that. Um, and of course, the, the high glycemic ones will as well. And even then, they might respond more so better to even just the use of carbohydrate the night before a race or, you know, a meal before key workouts or even restoring carbohydrate content prior to racing. And there's protocols like that out there that we develop for athletes because they do seem to feel a little bit better. And it doesn't seem to all of a sudden, if it's short enough of a protocol to mitigate the the alterations that they develop through the high fat diet. So there's a lot of 
different interesting combinations and ways to go about utilizing the concepts from the, the ketogenic world or the, the high fat, low carb world to help you as you work towards um, optimizing fueling for race day or optimizing training. Yeah, I mean, all that is, I mean, it's definitely giving me a much more nuanced understanding of, of the benefits of, of, you know, keto, you know, high, high fat diets for the athlete. Um, but maybe what are some of the cautions that an athlete should know, you know, if they're trying to, to use a ketogenic diet? The first one that I always make them aware of is the potential for low energy availability, mainly because it's very satietous. So when you take in all that fat, your hunger signals are going to be shut down a good bit. And so oftentimes we see low energy availability occur in those athletes where they're not taking in enough just because they're not hungry. So they stop fueling and they just cannot get it in. Um, the other thing that we can see happen is an impact on their actual endocrine system. So when you put your body into ketosis, and I've seen this you know, quite a bit, you can actually alter whether or not you know, the sex steroids in, in someone's body is made. So they'll end up as a male maybe with low testosterone or I'll have a female show up and say, hey, all of a sudden I lost my menstrual cycle. They'll say, why is this occurring? And I said, well, you no longer have the appropriate signal, one, to fuel your body enough to, you know, maintain energy availability, but also you can induce, you know, a little bit of hypothyroidism. You can induce a little bit of your, your pituitary, which usually signals your, your sex organs to produce your sex steroids. That's gonna go in in this whole pathway and possibly get inhibited. So what I teach athletes is to typically let their doctor know that they're wanting to try this because they're trying it for a non-medical reason and ask their doctor to work with them to monitor the effects on their endocrine system, on their hormonal system. For some people, it will work just fine. They won't see any change. However, in others, they will see change. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that some are training just that much harder than the others. And there are certain populations that we have to acknowledge where these high-fat, low-carb diets do help to actually improve you know, sex steroid production. So like in obesity, which is one of the you know, areas it comes from, originally from a, you know, a disease perspective, it will actually do just the opposite because it's helping to facilitate weight loss that's been inhibiting their, their natural production of sex steroids. So it's really all about taking a look at the person on the whole and saying, is there any potential that something might, something that we weren't anticipating may happen um, that we don't want to. Um, the other thing is monitoring the effects of it on things such as cholesterol and triglycerides and also bone density. Okay, the bone density can become impacted if sex steroid production um, is impaired. And in fact, we can see things like stress fractures arise and all of a sudden they're put out of competition for um, at least, you know, probably a couple months, if not much longer throughout the year. Um, the other thing I ask athletes to monitor is their ability to do upper end hit type work, high intensity interval training, because for some it really compromises this and they actually need it. And then sleep. Does it disturb this? Um, for some people, ketogenic high fat diets will disturb sleep. And if you can't sleep, you don't recover, you don't adapt and then move forward in training. 
So we've got to just be cognizant of what might happen when we try different types of nutritional plants. And then that way they may say, you know what, I can't do a full-blown ketogenic diet, but let's go ahead and work towards one of the modification versions. Um, and I think that's what you see most commonly in athletes when things like this, you know, are taken into consideration. Now, you mentioned, you know, some some modifications, at, you know, what might be an alternative approach to improving fat oxidation if an athlete doesn't want to try a high fat diet or maybe was experiencing some of those symptoms and needs a different approach. So the biggest thing I try to work on with athletes is the concept of nutrient timing to help them consume um, you know, enough calories before their session, but to also choose macronutrients that will give them the effects that they're looking for. And so a long time ago, a researcher by the name of Mindy Millard Stafford did a very key piece where she took a look at the consumption of fat, uh, different protein sources, so like uh, casein, and I believe it was um, just a pure whey isolate, and then carbohydrate. And what she showed was the influence of these macronutrients on fat oxidation. And so what I'll turn around to people is say, look, you know, what is your goal with your session? And could we manipulate acutely what you're going to consume prior to the training session to help facilitate some of the effects that you're hoping for? Um, and that's where we just turn around and say, let's make some example meals um, that can help you do this. So the other day, you know, had an athlete that before her long run, she had some eggs with spinach. Okay, they may or may not include some light fruit and something like that, but definitely eggs with spinach is going to keep them, you know, low enough carbohydrate content that they'll get the fat oxidation they're hoping for. I've had athletes use mackerel with olive oil before very long, slow distance type Ironman ses uh, sessions. And then there's others that are like, hey, Dr. Austin, I want the bacon and sausage. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's typically, you know, something that they know will get them through the session. They're not going to compromise themselves, but it does help them learn to function without carbohydrates. And then the other approach is gradual titration of the amount of carbohydrate used in specific training sessions. So sometimes I'll have athletes show up and they're just pumping a good bit of carbs at a level that I'm like, you know what, for as hard as you're going, you don't need all of that. You actually need to learn to function without some of it. And so we'll say, look, if you're taking in one to one and a half grams a minute, let's see if we can't slowly back you off so you're taking like half a gram a minute and seeing if your body just over time adapts and give you more energy intake up front, maybe with, you know, some eggs and spinach or some bacon and sausage, depending on who they are, right? So teaching them the difference between calorie intake and carbohydrate intake and its effects on their training and maybe even performance. So with all this just quality information we, we've learned, I, I mean, I've, I've learned as much today as I think I have with any other podcast we, we've recorded. Um, you know, how can an athlete who um, has maybe e either dabbled in this already or who hasn't but is interested, you know, how should an athlete evaluate whether a high fat diet is right for them? The first thing that I always tell people is to put your health first. So identify the health metrics that you need to monitor and make sure that you're not compromising your health. Secondly is those performance metrics. Sit down with your coach and say, hey, look, how do we know this is the right call for me? How do we know that I'm doing the right thing? And then third is the impact on their lifestyle factors. 
Is it causing them any undue stress? Is it harming their social interactions? Is it harming their sleep? You know, look at those things and say, is this right for me? So in addition to that, are, are there any other things that an athlete should know prior to using a high fat diet? You know, the biggest thing I try to touch on with them is what people like to call the keto flu. Um, and really, that's because, you know, when you start putting your body on a ketogenic diet and go into ketosis, you really will start to lose a lot of the water and electrolytes that you naturally hold on to with your carbohydrate stores. And so the thing I talk to them about is the need for proper hydration, especially the electrolytes. And so that's why you'll see some of these electrolyte based products out there, you know, that they say, hey, we're keto friendly, you know, they don't have the carbs in them, but they've got all the electrolytes and it'll help alleviate things such as headaches that can come from straight out dehydration that will eventually occur through ketogenesis. I mean, when you first start a high fat diet, you know, a lot of the weight that you see come off is just due to glycogen depletion, um, the removal of, of water from the body and electrolytes. The other thing that they need to know hmm. is that they may need some dietary supplementation. And this could be for a variety of reasons. It might be um, to help, you know, kind of balance out how they create their fat. So using like MCT oil, it might be to help kind of counter some of the higher um, changes that occur in cholesterol and what have you due to consuming a high fat diet, they might have to take in some psyllium husk or some flaxseed, things of that nature to kind of help uh, take a look at it. Or even if they go in and they pop all their information in chronometer and they take a look at their micronutrients and they say, oh boy, I'm missing some things. And they turn on and say, I may have to take a multivitamin and mineral to help ensure I don't lose some of my macro micronutrients on a day-to-day -day basis or that I'm meeting those minimum requirements. So sometimes we have to take a look at those things, but you know, on the whole, um, I think you know, athletes can be pretty smart about those two areas and fulfill them relatively easily if they've sat down and thought through everything. So as we kind of land the plane on our keto high fat conversation, um, you know, for, for folks out there who might be curious, you know, are there any other ways maybe to produce ketones in our body or, or to get ourselves into a ketosis state without necessarily being a full on high fat diet athlete? So ketones, first and foremost, are known for being produced when people are fasting. Okay, so intermittent fasting is something that's become popular with people. And, and part of the reason they might feel a little bit better throughout the day when they are fasting is because of the ketone production. Um, you also get ketones produced when you do exercise training without carbohydrate supplementation. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, what athletes need to remember is that all of those approaches may lead to low energy, okay? Low energy nutrition is not always the best thing um, for an athlete, and you need to recognize the difference between low energy nutrition plans and ketosis, okay? And, and what is really in your best interest as an athlete. And then, of course, there's the current um, nutrition products that are out there called ketone esters. And those can help put you into ketosis, but not require you to take out all the carbohydrates um, from the diet that you might need to to go to that state of ketosis otherwise. So there's a variety of different ways to produce ketones. The question is just, you know, what's in your best interest? And, and I would just tell people, you know, the low energy nutrition plans are definitely not one of the ways that you want to do that. Great set, everyone. Let's cool down.
So at the time this podcast first airs, we are just a few weeks past the 2020 Challenge Daytona race in Daytona Beach, Florida. Being one of the few major races to actually happen in late 2020, and with just the enormous amount of press and TV coverage generated by the professional race, a lot of triathletes had their eyes on Daytona for this event. Coach John Mayfield and I decided to travel to Daytona and race the 70.3, and I've got to tell you, this race did not disappoint. The race day weather was absolutely perfect. Riding and running on Daytona Motor Speedway was just awesome. Um, and seeing so many folks in TriDot kits, hats, and visors um, just all weekend long was just the cherry on top. It, it really was a great event. Um, we met a lot of TriDotters out there. Uh, and John and I, you know, one of these days uh, on an upcoming podcast, we'll likely talk a little bit more about our own races. Um, but today, I wanted you all to hear from a TriDot athlete who had a major breakthrough in her race in Daytona. John and I met Tammy Dotson in the Athlete Village the day before the race, and as excited as I was for my own 70.3 PR, I was maybe even more excited for Tammy's result. Um, in fact, the first thing that John and I did once we had finished, you know, we, we got back you know, to, to the truck, got our bags, uh, and kind of a change of clothes, and the first thing John did was open up his cell phone, um, you know, punch Tammy's name into the race tracker, uh, and just check on how she was doing and where she was on course. And we were absolutely thrilled uh, when she crossed the finish line. So um, here is Tammy to talk about her 2020 season and why conquering Challenge Daytona meant so much to her. Hi, I'm Tammy from the Tampa Bay area. And I know you can relate to me when I talk about I am still riding the high of my first 70.3 completion. Oh my gosh, Challenge Daytona was an awesome, awesome, awesome experience. Uh, this was not my first attempt at a 70.3. My first attempt was actually at Gulf Coast, uh, Ironman Gulf Coast last year. And needless to say, uh, yeah, I was underprepared, um, not well prepared. And the swim has always been my weakest, weakest area. So, um, with the water conditions and the Gulf Coast and everything, yeah, needless to say, I DNF that race. But I was not gonna give up. I had still had that goal of wanting to complete a 70.3. So what do I do? I register for I Am Augusta this year. <laughs> well, we all know how that came, um, how that turned out. And so didn't get to do that. Now I was quite okay with maybe not completing the goal for this year, especially with everything that had transpired. We all know that you know 2020 has been a rough year on a lot of folks, a lot of folks, and everybody has their challenges and obstacles that they've had to work through. Well, for me, um, it's been quite a bit of medical issues. Uh, so I've had um, several surgeries that uh, it took me out of the game for quite some time, you know, and a major abdominal surgery. And then I had an awake craniotomy um, that, you know, set me back with, for some training with, for quite some time. Now, one of the things that I love about TriDot is whenever we've missed months and months and months of training, I think we're just wired to believe that we have to catch up or make up 
training. But surprisingly, I was able to jump right back in and with the optimized training, it it met me where I was. So I didn't have to go back and make up all of those months of training that I missed. I jumped in and literally picked up training with where I was and my abilities at the time. So that was just, was seriously amazing. So from the surgery, I, from the surgeries actually, there were some unintended side effects that really interfered with not only daily activities, but you know, especially training. One of those was migraines. So I've always been a migraine sufferer, but now the triggers are more and I'm pretty much suffering a migraine every day. To all of my migraine sufferers, you know how that feels. So trying to push through that. In addition, I have this new thing called motion sickness. Yes, so (laughs) riding in a car, riding on a bike, uh, running, pretty much anything where there's other stimuli uh, really, really sets it off. Uh, So trying to work through those challenges when it comes to swimming, biking, and running was uh, an interesting experience. I was quite okay with not doing a 70.3 this year, but I had some wonderful, wonderful uh, triathlete friends in the local area who talked about this challenge Daytona and that they were going to uh, do this race so that they could still have a race before the end of the year. Now, one thing about uh, us as athletes, we have this thing called FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. <laughs> when everybody is talking about a race and then, you know, Andrew and the gang and everybody on TriDot kept talking about Challenge Daytona, Challenge Daytona. i like, you know what? I cannot miss out on this. So I finally put it on the calendar and it was time to get busy and train for it. Let me tell you about this challenge Daytona and race my race day experience. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I really got serious about challenge Daytona probably late October when I decided, you know what, I'm definitely going to do this. And I showed up on race day confident, feeling like I could do the best of my to my ability and I was ready to do this I was excited I was excited my race X projection for the swim had me at 101 and I finished the swim in 57 minutes that was huge for me because remember I told you the swim has always been my biggest 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 challenge and to know that I wasn't the last person out of the water, I'm telling you, I don't care how the rest of the race went. The fact that I got past the swim uh, in better than expected time was enough for me. So yes, I was riding that high. Going into the bike, um, again, previous uh, race um, execution, I was close to four hours on the bike and that was including several falls because remember I'm, I'm still dealing with this whole balance issue race day at Daytona 
three hours and 30 minutes. And that was with only one fall and one bathroom break. So again, huge, huge, huge accomplishment. Now the run is where I knew that I was going to struggle um, just because even in training, I had never really been able to get past six miles without my body breaking down and kind of just shutting down. And so I knew if I could get to the run, I had a strategy where I could just get through it. Whether it was going at my zone two pace for as much as I could and then walking when I needed to. And so utilizing that strategy, y'all came in at seven hours and 55 minutes. Now, for those that are, you know, the super, super pros and, and super fast, like that probably is like, what, 7.55? But I tell you what, that was an amazing, amazing accomplishment. So I am just over the moon right now with being able to actually complete a goal that I had set. The team at TriDot, my local uh, triathlon folks, I mean, everybody is placed in your life for a reason at a specific time. And how ironic, I ran into somebody at the Great Floridian, um, cause I used that as kind of a practice race before I did the Challenge Daytona. How ironic that the same person I was racked with, I then turned around and she was in line with me, behind me at the Challenge Daytona. You know, to me, uh, Andrew and John and, and all of the folks from TriDot, um, the community, the Tri community is just amazing, amazing, amazing. So if I can just give any words of encouragement, it would be trust the process, trust the process, have a plan, push where you can, use wisdom, have fun. And if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Thank you. Well, that's it for today, folks. I want to thank Dr. Krista Austin and pro triathlete Elizabeth James for talking about high-fat diets with us today. A big thanks to Tammy for letting us celebrate her 70.3 finish with her. And shout out to UCAN for partnering with us on today's episode. Head to UCAN.com and use promo code TRIDOT the next time you load up on their super starch products. Do you have a question for the team or a race day story to share on the podcast? Head to trydot.com slash podcast and click on leave us a voicemail to get your voice on the show. We'll do it all again soon. Until then, happy training. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and share the TriDot podcast with your triathlon crew. For more great Tri content and community, connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Ready to optimize your training? Head to TriDot.com and start your free trial today. TriDot, the obvious and automatic choice for triathlon training.